All right, well, good morning, Grace Hill. Good morning, good morning. You can find a seat. It is so good to be worshiping with you this morning. Uh, So glad to see all of your faces here. Uh, Happy Father's Day to the fathers in the room. We are just so grateful for you, and uh, we pray that today is a day where um, you are just reminded uh, of how pleased the Lord is uh, in your work, um, in your sacrifice, in your love uh, as a dad. Um, I'm so excited to uh, jump into the scriptures with you this morning. If you have a Bible, you can open it up to uh, the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke, as you know, we've been going verse by verse through this long book uh, for quite some time. And so uh, you can open it up to Luke chapter 10, Luke chapter 10. Um, And if you'd like to use your phone, that's fine with us. Use your phone. Scriptures will be on the screen behind me. However you can get uh, scripture in front of you. Uh, it's It's important that all of us are reading God's word together. Uh, So last week, I opened our time together, the sermon, as we were opening up the scripture, and and I asked this question. I asked, does being a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you would describe yourself that way, does being a Christian add stress to your life? That's the question I opened up with. That's a tough question to ask, but I think it's an honest question I also think it's a question that many of us, at least I know I do, resonate with. Does being a Christian add stress to your life? We were just singing this song. I grabbed the chart because as we were singing it, it just, it kind of hit me. You know, I have tasted life. Nothing satisfies like you do, Jesus. The fount that won't run dry. Nothing satisfies like you do. And I think a question, an honest question that I have that's similar to this question is, do you feel that way about your faith? Is your relationship with Jesus this one where you feel like, man, it's just this overflowing well of satisfaction and joy and peace? Or or do you feel maybe I feel like it just adds a bunch of things to my life. Where would you be with that? So, so last week when we asked this question, we approached it and, and, and we were asking the question from the scriptures, where is your face set, right? You're like, that's a weird question, but it's actually from Luke chapter nine. And the whole question is, what is your overall purpose in life? You know, where's your face set? Where's your gaze set? And we said that as followers of Jesus, our gaze needs to be set on the kingdom of God and and all of our circumstances in life can't get in the way of where we're going. And yet, many times we're tempted to set our face, to set our gaze upon the things of this world. And when we do that, what happens is our faith becomes an obstacle to the very thing that we've actually set our face upon. Therefore, it it just becomes an added stressor in our life, if you will. This week, I want to approach the same question, but from from a different angle. I want to approach the question talking about the rhythm of our life, rhythms of work, 
and rest. Rhythms of pouring ourselves out and being filled back up. We are a very busy, busy people, especially in our culture. All of our lives are packed pretty much to the brim with things that we're doing, things that we need to accomplish, things that we need to make sure we check off the list. And for many of us, and I know for me in my faith, a lot of times what it can feel like is it's just one more thing to add into a very full and busy life. One more thing to do, and therefore it can feel like all it is is an added stressor. So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna continue in Luke. This morning, we're gonna read verses 25 through the end of the chapter, so uh, 40 through 42. And we're gonna read two different accounts, okay? So the first account we're gonna read is verses 25 through verse 37, and that is the parable of the Good Samaritan. So that might be a parable that uh, many of us are familiar with. And then we're going to keep going, verses 38 through the end of the chapter, we're going to read when Jesus visits Mary and Martha at their house. And what I want to do is I want to take those two scriptures and I want to combine them. I want us to look at them together. And here's what I want us to see this morning is this. I want us to look at the radical way that Jesus calls us to pour our lives out for others. And I really want us to see as we study the Good Samaritan just how radical of a call this is when Jesus says we need to love our neighbor. Almost, I mean, it probably to the point it's going to make us go a little uncomfortable. But then at the very same time, I want us to see the radical way that Jesus calls us to stop, rest, be filled, and to receive his love a rhythm in our life. So let's jump in. Let's read these two accounts and then we'll see how it impacts our lives. So I'm gonna read Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 42. It says this, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life. Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? You're a lawyer. And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, the the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him, beat him, departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, As he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and 
brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him, to Jesus, and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. So our passage today starts out with this lawyer coming up to Jesus, seeking to test Jesus. Now, this is a Jewish lawyer. All right, so he should be, we, we would assume that he is an expert in the Jewish law, the Old Testament, basically, or at least the first five books, right? So he's coming up to test Jesus, to see what Jesus is all about, and says, hey, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus does what he always does, turns it back on him, and says, why don't you answer that question? And he gives us the two greatest commandments, right? Love the Lord your God with all your mind and heart and strength and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. And I think what we get in these two accounts that we just read is in the parable of the Good Samaritan, I actually think we get, obviously, a description, an explanation of what does it actually mean to love your neighbor. I also think in the account with Mary and Martha, we get a description and an explanation of what it means to love God. And in these two, we see a rhythm, an ebb and flow of the Christian life, of loving our neighbor and loving God and how those two interact with one another. So here's what I have. I'm going to organize the rest of our time in four different points just out of these two texts that I want us to work through. Four different points, okay? So here's point number one to get us started, and that is this. To love neighbor is primarily an act of giving. That's point number one. To love neighbor is primarily an act of giving. So this parable that Jesus tells this Jewish lawyer is ingenious storytelling, all right? And the reason for that is because what Jesus does is he he comes up with a fictional story, that's what a parable is, that's designed to communicate a point. And he comes up with this story that's very plausible to this Jewish lawyer, all right? So he says there's a man who's journeying from Jerusalem down to Jericho, So we would assume from the beginning that this man journeying is a Jew because he was probably in Jerusalem to worship at the temple, offer sacrifices at the temple, and he's journeying home. That's the assumption, that he's a Jewish man. 
and he's going down this road, it's also very plausible that he would get mugged and beaten up because this particular road from Jerusalem to Jericho was very dangerous. And it was common for people to be mugged on that road if you were by yourself. And then we've got the, in the story, a priest and a Levite pass by and they see this man who looks dead on the side of the road. He's been beaten up so badly he looks dead. Now, it would be plausible in this story, this kind of hypothetical situation, for the priest and the Levite to pass by. Why? Well, one, if they were traveling alone and they saw a man who looks dead, has been mugged, they're probably assuming there's bad guys around. I need to actually hurry up and get out of here, right? So just to protect your own safety, it's plausible that these guys wouldn't stop. I think we could relate with that if we felt in danger. The other reason why it's plausible, especially to a Jewish lawyer who is well-versed in the Old Testament law, is that, well, this priest, and then remember a Levite, Levite was a tribe of Israel that was charged with the servicing of the temple. Both of these people probably had temple responsibilities, And the Jewish law says, if you come in contact with a dead person, a deceased person, you are ceremonially unclean and therefore would not be allowed near the temple. And so it's plausible to a Jewish lawyer, okay, these guys pass by. They can't touch this guy. They can't help this guy. So they have a few excuses, their own safety, and they even have religious excuses not to stop and help this person. But what Jesus does is he tells this plausible story, then he throws a twist into it. And here's the twist. That the person who stopped was a Samaritan. So a Samaritan, we talked about this, I don't know, last week, two weeks ago, I can't remember. A Samaritan is basically an ethnic enemy of the Jews. They were at odds with one another. The Samaritans were considered by the Jews to be half-breeds and theological heretics because they had some differing of beliefs. But Jesus says that it was a Samaritan who stopped and had compassion on this person and and helped them. And so so this is Jesus' point, right? When Jesus is going to give us an example, what does it mean to love our neighbor? The, the example that Jesus gives is this. He gives the example of a man who risks his own life and spends his own money to love his enemy. Jesus gives the example of a man who risks his own life and spends his own money to help and love a person who probably hates him. That's the example Jesus gives. That that probably did not line up with this lawyer's interpretation of what it meant to love your neighbor. And so when Jesus is teaching us about what does it mean to love our neighbor, I want us to see how radical Jesus gets. He basically says, what I want you to do when it comes to loving your neighbor is I want you to give everything you have. I want you to wring yourself out dry in love of other people. I want you to wring yourself out emotionally, loving people who probably won't reciprocate or love you back or maybe who have hurt you. 
I want you to wring yourself dry loving people fiscally as you give of your own money to those who don't have it or who, don't, who are in need. I want you to wring yourself out dry personally as you sacrifice convenience and comfort and even goals that you might have in your life to love other people. And so Jesus is, is giving us this example. This is how the Christian is called to love people in this way, right? Like we are the people who offer our homes to people who don't have homes. We are the people who feed those who are hungry and don't have access to food. We are the people who befriend the lonely neighbor that the other neighbors are gossiping about or the lonely coworker that all the coworkers are gossiping about, right? We are the people who forgive generously even when we have been hurt, We are the people that take care of one another as a church family. And when one of us is hurt, we all rush in to try and heal those wounds. When one of us mourns, we all mourn. And when one of us rejoices, we all rejoice. We are the people who say, yeah, I'll get up early and come into church and and I'll sweat through my shirt like the guys did this morning, setting all of this up so that my church family can have a nice place to worship And I'll come in and I'll skip service to disciple the kids and teach them about the word of God so my church family can come here and worship. We are the people who love in this kind of radical, generous way. This is what the parable of the Good Samaritan teaches us, that to love neighbor is primarily an act of giving every last drop that we have. But... It leads us to point number two, which is this, to love God is primarily an act of receiving. Now that might hit us in different ways. Wait, to love God is primarily to receive? You know, so then we go to Mary and Martha's house. I so identify with Martha, all right? I love the cook. I love hospitality. I love to host people in my home. I'm primarily the person in my house that if we're gonna have people over, I'm the one running around and cooking and getting everything right and I want everything to be perfect and I'm the person every time I did this just this past weekend because we had some people over where I will always overbuy food. Like, like there will always be seconds, thirds, and fourths at my house if you come over to eat. And I spend way too much money on that. It's just how I am when I host people. So I identify with Martha. Like if I knew Jesus were gonna come to my house, I'd be a ball of stress. I really would be. I would want everything to be perfect. And I'd be running around just like Martha did. And I honestly think when it comes to our personal relationship with Jesus, many of us are like Martha's. Yes, we pour ourselves out to love our neighbors and to love other people, and we are constantly ringing that out over and over and over again. And then when it comes to our personal relationship with Jesus, we approach it like Martha. I have to squeeze even more out for him. There's more that I have to do for him. When I actually enter into a quiet, personal time with Jesus, the way that I approach it is not, this is a time for me to dip that sponge into water and to soak in. This is actually a time for me to to make sure I study everything and make sure I journal and make sure that I pray through my prayer list and make sure that I do all of the things that I think I need to do to please Jesus. We're like Martha's running around the house. 
And what is the result in our Christian walk with Jesus? As Jesus says to Martha in verse 41, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about so many things. I just want you to sit and not do a thing. What's the result? Stress, running on empty, living a Christian life where we sing this song we just sang and we go, I don't know if I can relate with that. My fountain does run dry. I have nothing else to give. So what do we learn from this encounter between Jesus and Mary and Martha in our text this morning, as I think is that the primary way, not the only, but the primary way we love God is we actually receive his love. We rest in him. We don't have to work. We don't have to continue to wring ourselves out to earn God's love. We can simply sit and receive as Mary did. So, so here's what this means. Here's what this means. We cannot love our neighbors in the way that we learned about in the parable of the Good Samaritan. We cannot love our neighbors like that. Ring ourselves out. If we are not willing to receive from God, to be filled back up, So in other words, here's what I mean. Before we can see ourselves as the good Samaritan in the parable, the compassionate one who is going and seeing people and and helping them and, and wringing ourselves out to love them, before we can see ourselves as the good Samaritan in the story, we first need to see ourselves as the man beaten up on the side of the road in the story. The temptation in the parable of the Good Samaritan is to think, okay, I'm called to be the Good Samaritan, but the good news of that parable is actually you're the man on the side of the road. You're the one that has been beaten up and left for dead by your sin. You're the one that actually has been alienated from God. You're the one who has no hope. But Jesus comes walking along the side of the road. And at that moment, he's your enemy. Because of our sin against him, because we've rebelled against God, he is our enemy. We would imagine that he would be the last person who would stop to help us because of the ways that we have sinned against him. Just like the Jew would imagine that the Samaritan, that's the last person who would stop and help me. But the gospel of Jesus Christ says that it is Jesus, the very one whom we have sinned against, who sees us, has compassion upon us, comes to us, picks us up, and at his very own expense, heals our wounds. Goes to the cross so that his blood could be poured out to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us from our sin against him, and to invite us into a life redeemed from our sin, healed in his family. See, the one thing you have to realize about the gospel of Jesus Christ, and and let me just say this for those of you in here who you're not sure if you believe in Jesus or not. What we need to understand about the gospel of Jesus Christ is that you begin your relationship with God by receiving 
You don't begin your relationship with God by earning. We are the man on the side of the road, left for dead. There is no hope. There is nothing we can do other than Jesus simply coming by his grace and his mercy and offering to help us. But we have to receive it. We have to let him pay the cost. We begin our relationship with God by receiving. But now I have a message for those of you who have received that. You've trusted in Christ to be your savior. You've received his grace and forgiveness. For those of us who have done that and we have lived our Christian life over and over again, I want you to know this too. You grow and you mature in your faith in Jesus by receiving. By coming to that well every single day, being reminded who you are in Christ, being reminded of who your savior is and being reminded that he loves you no matter what you do that you don't have to all of a sudden start accomplishing and earning and pouring yourself out every single day in order to stay in the love of God. You grow in your walk with Christ. You persevere in your walk of Christ by receiving. All right, so that, that leads us to point three, okay? Point three is this. The Christian life is a pour in, pour out rhythm. That's the Christian life, a pour in and a pour out rhythm. Uh, Jesus says in John 13, 34, he says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. That the way in which I've loved you, being the guy along the side of the road who saw you, had compassion, picked you up and saved you at my own expense, the way that I've loved you, now I want to empower you. I want to pour into you that love so that you can go out and love others in the exact same way. Love others as I have loved you. Allow me to pour into you so that you can go pour out for others. This is the rhythm that God wants us to have in our life. But it starts with sitting at the feet of Jesus and receiving his love. And so here's my goal for us this morning. Here's what I hope every single one of us walks out of here convinced of, or at least maybe I got you on the road to being convinced of this. And that's this, the productivity of rest. The productivity of rest. The reality that Sitting at the feet of Jesus and receiving his love is an act of love for those around me. Because I can't wring out, I can't pour out what's not already been filled up inside of me. And so the act of rest is productive. It's an act of love. Like if you're a parent, resting and receiving the love of God is a way that you radically love your kids. Resting and receiving the love of God is a radical way that you love your coworkers and your neighbors and your enemies. The productivity of rest that we can't live our lives on empty. God has engineered, because he's our creator, right? So he's engineered our bodies, right? Physiologically, he's engineered our bodies. He's engineered our souls spiritually 
to operate on a rhythm of work and rest. You don't believe me, try not sleeping all week, right? Your body will shut down. We have been engineered to operate on a rhythm of giving and receiving, work and rest. And if this is true, then to allow our bodies to have rest, to allow our souls to rest and receive the love of God is a radical act of love to those around us. And I believe that one of the reasons why for many of us, our faith actually just becomes a big stressor in our lives is because we operate our lives and we never rest and receive the love of God. We love our neighbors well like the good Samaritan, but we love God like Martha. And there is no rest. You know, I'm reading a book right now. um, It's a fascinating book. I'm really enjoying it by Malcolm Gladwell called The Bomber Mafia. All right, it's a book, uh, it's a new one. Um, I saw it at Costco, so I just picked it up. Um, so it's a new one that he writes about uh, basically how the, the uh, American bombing strategy changed in World War II, All right? So fascinating for me. Um, it's a great book, but he talks about the fact that in World War II, our strategy, all right, when it comes to bombing our enemies, changed. So it used to be just like shock and awe, right? So just as many bombers in the air as you can, drop as many bombs on the cities that you can, and let's just try to multiply destruction and death, and hopefully our enemies will just cave, right? Just, Just go night bombing runs until this massive rainstorm came to Pittsburgh. And what happened in Pittsburgh is they had all these floods, and a factory got flooded, And it shut this factory down. And this particular factory produced springs. And they were specific springs used in all of the aircraft that our military was manufacturing. And it brought the manufacturing of our aircraft to a halt. And so some really smart people in our military goes, huh, that's interesting. That's a choke point right there. You just took out one factory, and taking out that one factory actually just halted our entire manufacturing process of our aircraft. That's an interesting strategy. What if, instead of just blanketing our enemy cities with bombs, what if we actually strategically bombed a few choke points? A few different places, uh, transportation hubs, uh, factories, whatever it was, and we could grind their military machine to a halt just through a few strategically placed bombs. So for America, this spring factory was a choke point. I think for many of us, the way that our enemy attacks us and influences us is he has a very specific, subtle choke point for us. He doesn't come after a shock and all, right? Let's just make their lives miserable. Doesn't do that. He has a choke point. And I think for us, this is point number four, I think that our choke point for us in our culture is busyness. I think the enemy knows that if he can keep us busy and if he can convince us that it's implausible for us to rest in the way that God has called us to rest, that he will make us ineffective and joyless and stressed and anxious. Our choke point in our culture is busyness, busyness. We have filled our lives up so much, so many things that we have packed in 
that a regular rhythm of rest in receiving from God to us is implausible. Radical. I mean, if you just think about how technology has impacted our lives. Technology, an amazing thing. Very good. But what has technology done? It's made us more efficient, and therefore we just pack more stuff in, right? Why has COVID made everyone exhausted? We all got to stay home for a year. Why are we so exhausted? Because we've packed more into our schedules. Oh, great. I don't have to commute anymore. I can work longer, right? Oh, great. I can talk to 18 different people at the very same time. We've just made ourselves busier. I even see it that we've made our, our devotional life, our time with the Lord, right? We've used technology to make that even busier for us or more efficient for us, right? Well, I can just jump in my car and listen to a podcast. I can just do a five-minute devotional. I can just listen to something real quick. I can get my time in with the Lord real fast. It's part of my day, and I can move on the rest of my day, and no wonder we're exhausted, and no wonder our faith feels like it's nothing but an added stressor in our life. This is our choke point. We are so busy We're wringing ourselves so dry. We have nothing left to give, nothing to give our neighbors, nothing to give our church family, no capacity for anything. We don't have the emotional capacity to deal with hard conflict. We don't have the capacity to give up our comforts and our conveniences for other people. We've just got nothing. We get home at the the end of a long day and we veg out in front of Netflix because we're just so fried. I see that in my life. And so what I want to challenge us with today is that we must protect ourselves from this choke point busyness. We've got to protect ourselves from it. And so here's my challenge I want to issue to all of us this morning, and that is this. Resist busyness through giving God, listen, 45 to 60 minutes a day alone. And I know for many of us, we're like, there's no way that's happening. You wanna see my calendar? You wanna see what I have to do? I have like 18 kids. Like, what, how am I gonna do with everything my kids gotta do? 45 minutes to 60 minutes a day with God. And listen, there's no magic around those words. I just know that that time frame is gonna be a challenge. Resist busyness through giving God that much time a day. And I'm gonna say this, if that is implausible in your life, and and guys, I'm preaching to myself right now. I'm looking at my calendar. I've been trying to put this in. It is a struggle. And I can get away with putting that in my work hours. If we cannot do this, if it's implausible, then I think that our lives are out of rhythm. And that we actually have to make some hard choices and say no to some things. And I know the pushback's immediate, right? It's, Alan, you know what I mean? Like my kids, like, do you know like the the, the activities they do, the appointments they have to go to, and the homework, and this, and then I've got my job, and then I've got these other responsibilities, and cooking and cleaning, and there's just like all of these things. I get it. I totally get it. We've created a culture. We're a part of a culture where we go, This kind of rest is radical and implausible. 
And I think it's exactly the enemy's strategy. And so I do think this is an act of resistance. It's an act of assault against unhealthy rhythms in our life and that we need to give God this kind of time in our life because, listen, it is a radical act of love. Again, parents, I'll I'll say to you, it's a radical act of love for your kids to give you this time. It is not selfish. It is a radical act of love. If you're an employer and you've got employees under you and you're dealing with stuff every day, all day, it's a radical act of love towards them for you to give yourself this time every day with God. Radical act of love. So here's what I want to do. I actually want to give you a structure for it. Okay? I want to, I want to, how, how would I structure this 45 to 60 minute kind of time a day? What does it even look like to receive the love of God? What is it, when you use those words, what do you mean by that? Okay, here's what I not mean, what I don't mean. What I don't mean is put yourself on some crazy reading plan that's almost impossible to do, and every single time you have your 45 to 60 minute time with God a day, you're stressed out, but you're trying to stay on the reading plan. It's not what I'm talking about. What I'm not talking about is having a prayer list that's a mile long and you can't even get through the entire prayer list every single time and you feel guilty because there's people you're not praying for. That's not what I'm talking about. That's Martha. Here's a structure. It's read, sit, write, pray, okay? And just, just go with me on it, all right? Just give it a shot, okay? This isn't in the Bible, all right? This is just, you know, kind of coming from the Bible, and I'm giving you an idea. So if you don't like it, that's fine. But here's how I think you should structure it. It's to be like Mary in this way. I want you to sit down for 45 to 60 minutes. I want you to have that time by yourself. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to get God's word, and I want you to read it. It could be a psalm, whatever you're reading through. Once you read it, I want you to put it down, and then I want you to sit Go for a walk or whatever it is. I don't care, but be silent. Be merry. Sit at Jesus' feet and receive. And I'm talking for like 20 minutes. Be silent. And here's what I'm gonna promise you will happen during those 20 minutes. Is all the cares of the world are gonna come flooding in. Everything that makes you anxious. Everything that you gotta do later in the day. Maybe you'll replay some conversations that you had from the day before. Maybe there's people that you're worried about or anxious about, they're gonna pop up into your head. Stuff with your kids, stuff with work, all kinds of stuff. And what you do during those time when you're just sitting after reading the word is you just trust Jesus with it. How do I do that? You sit, don't do anything. And as you breathe in, you breathe in all these worries. And as you breathe out, you say, Jesus, I trust you with this. I trust you with this. I trust you with this. And then when you're done sitting for that 15, 20 minutes, I want you to write. You don't have to write a lot. Just want you to write. And I want you, what are, maybe there's something on your heart that was significant and you need to write out, I'm trusting Jesus with this. Maybe there was something from the scripture that you read that really impacted you and you write about that. Just write what's on your heart. And then I want you to pray. 
pray about the things that were on your heart. Pray about the things that you're anxious about. Pray about what you learned, what you read through scripture, whatever it is. But I want you to read God's word, sit at the feet of Jesus. I want you to sit and trust God with your cares. In our culture, this is the hardest thing for us to do is actually sit and do nothing and receive. Then I want you to write and I want you to pray. I believe that if we as people, as a church family, if we decided that we're gonna resist the rhythms and cultures around us, by carving out this time, we're gonna say no to things. We're not going to allow it to be implausible for us to live the rhythm and the life that God has called us to live. I believe if we as people do that, then we will be able to love our neighbors in such radical ways that we never imagined. This is the well that we draw from. We begin our relationship with Jesus by receiving and we grow and we continue and we persevere by sitting at his feet and receiving. So here's what I'd like us to do. Uh, If you had communion, you can grab that. If you didn't get communion on the way in, there's some on the table back there. Maybe raise your hand and I don't know if a few people would be willing to uh, deliver a few communion cups. Give people a moment to grab that. As you grab your communion cup, what I want you to do is I want you to sit. I want you to close your eyes for just a moment. want to take us back to the parable of the Good Samaritan. Again, we're primarily in this story. We're not the Samaritan, but we're the person on the side of the road in need of help. So what is it for you this morning where you need help? What do you need to trust Jesus with? Maybe for you, it's trusting Jesus for the first time. Jesus, I trust what you have done on the cross for me and that through the cross, you have forgiven me of my sin. And that I am perfectly acceptable in your sight and that I do not have to work to earn that. There's nothing else I have to do but to trust you. Maybe for you, there's some worries or anxieties in your life right now. Maybe there's something going on in your life and you don't know what to do. Or you're in a conflict and you don't know how to navigate that conflict and love that person. Or you've got some decisions that you have to make and you're not sure what decision to make. Whatever it is, in this moment, I want you to imagine yourself on the side of the road, feeling helpless in that. And Jesus comes and says, I'm willing to take care of it. Trust me with it. And just for this moment, right here, right now, I want you to receive his love.
You don't have to do anything. Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So why don't you take your bread and let's eat it together. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. In other words, for those of you who trust upon this, you are mine forever. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink together.